Well, that is the longest introduction <laughs> by far that I have ever had, and, um, and by far the, uh, the best one, too. But you need to know the backstory when I got this call from Josh. It was, it was uh, not my finest moment as a person nor as a professional. I asked a pedestrian question of Josh. Well, you know, most of the work that I do is with, um, frankly, with pretty well-heeled, successful, white male entrepreneurs and businessmen. So the question that came from who knows where was, well, can you pay for it? <laughs> that is really a bad question to ask a potential client. Uh, but I did, and Josh was very gracious and didn't treat me as a um, kind of elitist snob uh, consultant, but, uh, but said, yes, we do, and we'd love to have you work with, with us, and I am forever grateful that uh, I got off my high horse and was uh, more than happy to, to work with Jason and Josh and Juan and, uh, and to be here this morning, uh, to be blessed already by what's happening and, and to share a few things with you. Um, let me say by way of introduction, it occurred to me when I walked in the building and when I was here, uh, to, I was reminded of what Margaret Wheatley, the consultant guru that spent all of her life about six days consulting with organizations about change and transformation. This is what she says. Don't spend all of your life trying to change an entrenched and old institution. Build something that people can observe that is different and they can choose to model it if they want to. I personally think that's what's happening here in this building and in this community. And she also says <clears throat> that the only way significant change has occurred in the world is when small groups of like-minded individuals organize around a really compelling vision. And I think that's, what ha that's what's happened here. There were a number of couples that said, we want to make a sacrifice and said, we want to do it in a particular location. My personal opinion, I'll be happy to be proven wrong about this, but my personal opinion is that mega churches probably have maybe 10 or 15 years of shelf life in them, and maybe in mainly suburban areas. I'm not too sure, but I think what's happening at Providence and Cross Purpose is a model that's possible for others to follow, and I know Jason and others here um, are doing that, beginning to branch out. But if you're on the fence as to whether you want to commit to something that might have a long-term impact on our culture and on the Christian community, I'm encouraging you to invest at, uh, at Providence. I think that would be a great investment of your time and energy over the next 20 or 30 years. <clears throat> to begin with this morning, because what I'm going to say is so uh, intensely personal um, there are two critical lenses through which I'd like you to be listening as I speak. Um, one is from Richard Rohr, the Franciscan in Albuquerque, and the other is from Parker Palmer. And the first one is basically this. There are three stories in play in your life every day. The first story is your own personal story. This is my own psychological, emotional experience of life. It's uh, where we like to connect the dots. Do we know what happened? Can we, uh, in counseling, which has been mentioned here, can we understand why we have the responses we have? Maybe our genetic pool uh, it comes from people who are prone to depression and anxiety. It's kind of good to know that. Um, so that we uh, maybe are a super anxious person or depression or change is really a struggle. Why and how to respond to that? This is my story. I heard a woman tell me last week in my office that she came to understand that she was the girl who was hated and hated herself. Well, if that's true, God bless her, 
it's important to know that and to know that the love of Jesus can address that, self-hatred. The wonderful thing about this is self-awareness. The danger is, uh, especially these days, we become very individualistic and self-centered, and the question always is, well, now that I know about myself, I can connect the dots, so what? But there's my story. Then there's our story. This is the sociological part of your life. This is the human architecture of your life. There are 43 people, 43 families, I should say, in surf wherever it is, Florida, whose bodies of their loved ones are somewhere in the rubble. And they meet... Uh, three times a week, I believe it is, to get a report. And whereas they first began just hearing the report of how many people had died and that their loved one had not yet been found, now I read in the post this morning that they come early and they stay late after the report. Why? Because tragedy and hardship is creating a story. Flight 253, I believe it was, that United flight that went down in the cornfield in Iowa, not far from where I grew up back in the summer of 89. They have reunions. The survivor of, those, of that accident has a reunion every three or four years is my understanding. Why? Because we're not just individuals. Having a psychologically aware experience of life, we're people that are created to bond and live in community with one another. It brings our individual experience into a larger context and a larger meeting. The benefit, of course, of our story is community and connection. The uh, danger these days is that it creates a kind of tribalism and it polarizes in ways that we, uh, is not, not at all helpful. There's my story, there's our story, and let me put it this way, as Richard Rohr does, and then there's the story. The actual story of what is happening historically and those of us that are followers of Jesus and in the Judeo-Christian tradition, we believe that there is a redemptive story going on every day. The question is whether or not we're interested in exploring it or seeing how it might actually be a part of our lives. So there's... Christ is risen, Christ has died, Christ will come again in the liturgy of the Anglican and the Catholic Church. That's part of the story. Forgiveness, redemption, when you're forgiving your kid or those of you that are uh, young, you're forgiving your parents, which we need occasionally, that's the story. The story of what God is actually doing in and through our lives, our own privatized story, our corporate story together, and what is God actually doing? So part of what God asked me to do was to write a book about my individual story. Um, I'm not sure what he's asking you to do. So this is the one thing I want you to think about as you listen is there's my story, there's our story, and there is the story of the redemptive purposes of God. The other lens is Parker Palmer's lens, which is simply this. It's just a matter of time until a gap emerges between our hopes and dreams and aspirations and current reality. Um, and the best word we have for this, sometimes Parker Palmer says it's a tragic gap, as the 150 people who lost their lives and those families in Florida, sometimes it's just disappointment and uh, 
discouragement. But a gap, if you're not living in it now, you will at some point in your life. And here's the point that Parker Palmer makes. The best English word we, we have for handling this gap is heartbroken. Heartbrokenness. And he said there's two ways that our hearts break. One is a part, and that's like shrapnel. These are the people my age around whom you want to spend very little time. Life has accrued for them in kind of bitter, angry, frustrated, depressed, anxious ways, complaining and basically pretty hard-hearted. But their hearts have broken apart. And he says the other way our hearts can break is they can break open. If your heart breaks open in the face of tragedy and suffering and hardship, then you become more, to use a rare word, capacious. We have greater capacity for love and acceptance and grace and forgiveness and understanding the human condition in which we all find ourselves. So I want to just share with you this morning a couple of things that have helped me keep my heart from breaking apart although there have been a couple of times when I've lodged some pretty hefty shrapnel in the side of people's legs unfortunately uh, oftentimes it was the institutional help bless their hearts and souls that are doing helping people die from Alzheimer's and dementia. That is a tough job. But here's the first thing that's been helpful to me, and I'll just tell you in a couple of sentences what my particular story is. In 2003, Janine said, there's something wrong with my brain. To be honest with you, because she had frontotemporal dementia and that particular kind of dementia starts in the right brain, she lost virtually all of her unusually gifted uh, capacity for emotional intelligence and interpersonal relationship. We never had a conversation about the fact that she was losing her mind. She, that was part of what it meant for Janine to lose her mind, was she couldn't talk about the fact that she was losing her mind. So from there, it went to um, after she was finished being the CFO and the COO of Mops International at the same time, she then started to decline, but she started, she wrote a book, she started a company. We were driving down I-25 and turning left at, at uh, Parker or at Arapahoe Road and I-25. Janine loved flan at the Mexican restaurant there. She asked me, what's flan? We would go out to dinner and she would, at places that were favorite spots to eat, she would say, well, we've never been here before. Long story short, she, she tracked down a neuropsychologist. We did some exams. She went to University of Colorado, went to Vanderbilt, and then to the University of California uh, at San Francisco and got a diagnosis. That was a decade plus ago. So here's what's helped me deal with that. If you this morning are not in this uh, experience of pain and suffering, but if you're in an experience of flow, uh, good. Enjoy it. Don't look over your shoulder. Think that something bad is about to happen. Just enter into your experience of blessing and abundance. Uh, this is how Anne Pachette says it, the novelist. Uh, so my first point to you is this, study, study your happiness. There are always perfect times with the people we love, Anne Pachette says, moments of joy and equality that sustain us later on. I'm living that time with my husband now. I try to study our happiness so that I will be able to remember it in the future just in case something happens 
and we find ourselves in need. These moments are the foundation upon which we build the house that will shelter us into our final years so that when love calls out, how far will you go for me? You can look it in the eye and say truthfully, farther than you would ever have thought possible. That's strong. Janine had an unusual capacity to study our happiness. From the moment I met her at the University of Texas, she could enjoy and appreciate me and us and as our life emerged. Uh, she was a student of how well things were going for us. And, and uh, if you're in that space and you're not in a heartbreak space, just stockpile the goodness, make deposits, enjoy it, love it, study it, work with it, thank God for it. Just in case uh, you're not gonna be there a decade from now or 10 minutes from now or 10 weeks from now. The second thing that I've done, um, uh, let's see, oh, don't get lost here in your notes. Uh, <clears throat> the second thing I've done is linked hands with others. Uh, you can't do hardship and pain and suffering alone. This is a self-evident truth. There's a story of a, of a woman who uh, lost attention just uh, on the other side of the eastern border of, of Colorado in the wheat fields, and her little two-and-a-half-year-old wandered away from the house and got lost in three feet of wheat field. And so she and her husband launched out and tried to look for him, and they looked all afternoon, and then at night they got flashlights, and then they got their neighborhood people together, and, uh, and this was the photo um, op was the, the father painfully carrying the lifeless body of his son back to the house with the words, if only we had linked our hands together sooner. Because when they got the, na the neighbors together and the son came up, they held hands and just swept all the way around the house until they found, unfortunately, the lifeless body of their son. <clears throat> it's a dramatic story, but we cannot handle hardship and pain and suffering alone. Can't do it. It's too painful. I lost a dear friend in an automobile accident uh, in between the University of Texas and, and, uh, and Texas A&M a number of years ago. And uh, the, the priest at our church said, I will carry the suffering for you because you will not be able to handle Jim's death on your own. That was painfully true. So here are the other things that have really been helpful to me. And, um, and I have some problems with Paul, some of his writings. I kind of get irritated with some of the things that St. Paul says occasionally. Um, you know, I think he gets a little carried away. Some of his Pharisaic enthusiasm, uh, I say you could just tone it down a little bit. Uh, but. Uh, not on these points. And here's the first thing that I, I, when I get down and discouraged, here's what I happen. These little, these passages of scripture that I'm just gonna refer to, and you can get Jason, some of your theologically trained people expound on them. I do them in this order. I go to uh, <clears throat> Romans 8, 31 and following, and this will, you, you'll, Remi this is just a reminder. Who will separate us from the love of God? Who will separate us? Uh, can hardship or trouble or persecution or famine or, or nakedness? By the way, apparently Paul thinks if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't get a pass on suffering. You've noticed, haven't you? 
Janine didn't smoke too much pot. She didn't take too many drugs. She exercised perfectly. She watched over what kind of things uh, we ate at our house and our three daughters. She was exercising 100 miles a week on a road bike the day and the, the, that she had to be taken to an emergency room because she was running away from my home. Uh, Janine didn't get a pass on suffering. If Janine could lose her mind, anybody can actually lose their mind for reasons that we ne will never know. So um, here's what's really helped me through. I am absolutely convinced that Paul's statement about the love of Jesus and that there is nothing Nothing will get us to get God to stop loving and staying with us. And this moves on to, right, Romans 8, 28. That's the other passage I stick with uh, and hang on for dear life. In everything that happens to you, God is at work for your good. Romans 8, 28 doesn't say that everything that's happened is going to be good. This we know is obviously not the case. But somehow, God is, there's an advocate in place for you and I every single time tragedy or difficulty befalls us. And that God is instantly in a mode of advocacy and healing and transformation for, and love for you and me. Now, I would never have guessed this, but um, loneliness is very different than solitude. What I've learned uh, since the day that the Arapahoe County Sheriff took Janine to the hospital is that the loneliness that I've felt has been transformed into a sense of solitude, and I'm a good companion to myself, actually. As painful as it is on some occasions, I'm actually not lonely most of the time after Janine being gone for five years in memory care. Like, and if you know how extroverted I am and have been and how much I depend on connecting with people, that may shock you if you know me well, that my home has actually become a kind of sanctuary for me. I turned down an invitation last night, reluctantly, to a birthday party because I wanted to be alone before I came down and spent time with you all this morning. I just thought it was the best thing to do. So how has God worked with me personally, psychologically? Well, part of the way he's worked is he's turned loneliness into a sense of solitude. The book and sending the book out to a number of friends and family and colleagues has put me in contact with folks that I have not had community with for a long time. I'm giving God the credit for that in the face of this, in the face of the book. Now, one other thing that happened is that when on Janine's uh, 70th birthday, I took a dozen roses and stood outside of room C3 at New Dawn Memory Care Aurora. Janine had no idea it was her birthday. Um, really a sad, sad day. Uh, obviously, in the midst of COVID, some of you have had to face the same thing. You couldn't visit your friends and family. So on my way back to, the, uh, to my pickup, before I lost it emotionally. There was a woman standing in, on the sidewalk by the name of Nancy Britton, who was the executive director of Janine's memory care facility when she went into memory care and was in Colorado Springs running a center there. She said, we're closing down this center. I want Janine to come with me. I'm, giving, I'm, I'm reserving a room for Janine as soon as this one closes and she has a place to be in Colorado Springs. How does that kind of thing happen? Is it chance? 
Is this part of God's advocacy? I think it probably is. Let me say one other thing that really keeps me going. Uh, There's stunning words from Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, 31 um, and following. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts you and comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we're distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort. One of the things that's so difficult for those of us, and you've experienced it, who are in periods of stress and pain and suffering, is what's the purpose? What's the purpose of me four days ago seeing Janine in a wheelchair with her dear sister from Dallas, who's a saint, coming to visit her and feeding her pureed food? Like, come on. What's like, why? And why are, if the statistics are right, three times the number of people who are diagnosed today in the United States of America, that's 6.2 million. That number will triple by the year 2050. Why? What's the purpose of that? We don't have an answer to that, but here's what we do have an answer to. <laughs> that... When bad things are happening to you, the redemptive purposes of God is that that's to be passed on. If you're comforted, and I have been, that's for you. That's for the other. It's not all about me. It's not all about my experience, right? It's about the God of all comfort as the Lord Jesus' suffering has been for our good. So there is a way, we in the Anglican circles talk about this as incarnational theology, that there's some way that the incarnational redemptive work of Jesus gets embodied in us personally. And when I go down and hold Janine's hand, that there's a way in which that's like Jesus holding her hand. And so... Everything that's happening to you has this purpose that is for the good and benefit of the other, not only for mine, and thank God for how I've experienced that. Let me say one final thing as I close, and, um, and this is the background to what I'm going to say. Here's what we all do, those of us who are caregivers to Alzheimer's and, and dementia. When we know our partner or mother or father have to go in and you've experienced it, this is nursing home, assisted living, all that kind of thing, we like to take a, a personal effects, right? You know, pictures and clothing and, uh, you know, chairs and da-da-da. Um, so we did that. Janine went into room C3 over at uh, New Dawn Aurora, and I felt great, really awesome, man. It's going to be really good. We have my, our wedding picture was so awesome, you know, in uh, Dallas, and pictures of our three girls who all turned out to be smart and beautiful and blah, 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 they, all of that. And they told us, me, uh, it kind of arrests, it kind of, I guess it offended me at the beginning, don't come and visit Janine for the first two weeks. Because if you do, she'll think that you're going to take her home, which was painfully true. And that lasted, believe me, a lot longer than two weeks. So um, two weeks, I go to visit her. None of my pictures that I had brought were in the room except one. And if you guys can do it, would you flip it on the screen? This 
was the picture that was on Janine's room. It was uh, drawn by an eight-year-old girl, uh, Aniana Cromeric. You can go online, you've seen it before. It's called The Prince of Peace, some of you have. That was the only picture Janine had in her room. So amongst the things that have kept me sane and kept my heart from breaking apart is like Peter, when Jesus came on the, on the water, I'm going to say it this way. I've maintained eye contact with Jesus because Peter started to sink, right, when he saw the waves and he saw the wind, as Matthew describes it. So there's a lot of reasons not to keep your eyes centered on Jesus. So now, when I go to visit Janine, um, I will hold her hand and I will maintain eye contact with her because she can't speak. She has no words left. Frontotemporal dementia destroys first the personality and emotional intelligence and then cognition. That's your temporal lobe in the back of your brain. So Janine can just look at me. And then I look up and I look at this picture, and that's what we have. We don't have words, but we have this picture. And if you're in a period of flow and abundance and it's going great for you, thank God and keep your eyes on contact with Jesus. If you're in a period of pain and suffering, the likes of which you thought you would never have to go through, keep your eyes on Jesus. Because if we don't, we're susceptible to sinking into our own experience, our own privatized experience. So um, the word Here's what I wonder about with you individually. The last sentence that Janine left for me was take a larger way. And she said it over and over and over one, sun, one Sunday afternoon on the back porch of New Dawn Aurora and I had no idea what was going on until I got my anxiety level low enough and then I could realize Janine's actually saying something to me. This is the spirit. And then she would use the word occasionally, take a larger calling away. So here's what I wonder about you individually. If you're in the flow, okay, uh, taking a larger way may mean don't hoard your blessing. <laughs> like, just like, you know how when we're in the flow and our friends are really struggling, we say, well, I don't want to hang out with them because, you know, it's going so awesome for me. Well, no, no, like, share your blessing. Is there a larger way that you could take because you're in the flow? And, uh, and if you're not in the flow, uh, partner with someone else, trust yourself to someone else, endear yourself to someone else. If you, this morning, are carrying a pain, you're suffering. If there's some shame with you, there's gotta be people. Do you guys do that here where you do some prayer afterwards? And say, yeah, let people know. Um, and then I wonder about you corporately or as a community of faith. Like, what would it mean for you to go to the next level? What would it mean if you, if you loved uh, a little bit more? than what you're loving right now? What's this neighborhood just longing for you to do here as a faith community? I don't know, but may, it, it might be something that the Lord wants you to do that 
will expand and deepen this um, call of how do we love our neighbor. Um, there's a prayer that Paul said for the Ephesians, and, and my understanding was that the Ephesian church was a pretty good church. It wasn't as messed up as the Corinthian church and so on, but here's what he says. Um, and this is my prayer for you. Here's what I believe is true about providence. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, I think that providence as a community and cross-purpose and these gatherings, and thank God we're back together again on Sunday morning to some degree, I would say that you're more rooted and grounded in love than many faith communities or the kind of uh, extended introduction to me, the tears, the testimony from the brother and sister, like that happens when a community is rooted and grounded in love. But here's what Paul prays. I pray that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the power together with all saints, the power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. Are you praying for the power to comprehend and grasp as a community of people here of, of how you might more profoundly and deeply metabolize how much God loves you and how that love might take shape in North Denver and around the world. Well, God be with us all, me and you, and as a community, and let's pray together for just a moment. <clears throat> Dear God, there's heartbreak and sorrow and suffering and sadness in this room and may they be comforted by you and may they pass that comfort on to one another and may this community of faith in this neighborhood at this particular time in our culture and in our world and in our city more deeply and fully understand the breadth and depth and height of your love in Jesus name Amen Stop. You're not going. <laughs> Stay up here, Jay. I wasn't giving you a high five. I was telling you to stop. So. Uh, you're eight minutes early, so no guests to your. Wow, really? So. I didn't see it. Was that clock moving? No, don't worry about it. I'm going to gobble up your eight minutes. Um, I'd just like to ask a couple sure. questions to you. Um, I think one of the strongest themes I got from the book was this idea that we are not in I think we always default to, yeah, God's in control, God's in control, but I'm not sure we spend enough time on we are not in control. And you just drive that nail all the way through the board in the book. Yeah. And one of the things you said, grief hunts us down. It has a life of its own. Try as we may, it really can't be managed. And I just found myself, it's a, it's a new thought for me. In fact, my friend from Salt Lake yeah. called me yesterday and he said, that thought to just let it go and stare the beast of loss and grief in the face um, and surrender to it was the strongest part of what I shared with him. Can you riff on that a little bit? Yeah, I can, uh, especially if you're white and male in my age, you tend to shy away from emotion. And um, you know, if you're younger, a lot of you grew up around um, psychology and, and, uh, and therapy and so on. Well, uh, the paradox is that if you fight against grief and loss, you reinforce it. The more you give yourself over to grief, I'm not talking about grieving indefinitely and, and 
and your identity becomes, you know, the loss and pain and suffering that we've been through, but that we allow the grief to be present and then it loses a whole lot of its power. One of the beautiful things, believe it or not, of living alone is I can cry anytime, anywhere, and don't have to explain to anybody what's going on. I do have a three-month-old uh, chocolate lab. He will begin to wonder at times. <laughs> like, are you totally okay? <laughs> But so far, uh, Jackson doesn't even care, like he's fine. But yeah, it's part of the paradox. You know, we gr Paul says we grieve, right? Uh, somewhere in Corinthians, we grieve, but not as people without hope. See, it's like we can grieve and have hope at the same time. So uh, yeah, let your, let your tears and your grief embrace it, actually. That's you also have a chapter on hope where you actually talk about the damning side of hope. Yeah. Talk about that. Dasha Kuyper in the American Scholar wrote an article called Hope is the Enemy. What she's really talking about is, is false hope. You know, Janine and I lost our first baby. I mentioned this in the book, and we had all kinds of people, Christians and New Age folks and people from Rice University and LA, it's going to be fine. It's going to be totally good. You know, you guys are faithful. And so they tried to give us a false reassurance. And that's just not a good thing to do. Um, so I, I think there's a kind of hope that is based on what we actually believe in N.T. Wright, the Ang Anglican scholar, says Jesus came to announce that the kingdom is here now, and that's part of what I was mentioning at the beginning. There's hope that in every circumstance, you know, God will be at work. That in, in, like, there's a hope that's reliable, but the hope that things are gonna turn out the way you had hoped or had planned or thought not really God has given us what it takes to move through and in into the experience I want to say one thing about the book um, I got very clear I believe by God's grace who I was writing to very early I just started journaling I had no aspirations of being an author and authoring a book, especially on this topic. But very early, I got clear that I was writing to, to the common reader about a common problem. Suffering, in all of its various forms that you all have been through or are going through. And uh, that you didn't have to have a fancy degree, you know, from Denver Seminary or from Rice or from Duke to read my book or, you know, uh, be a psychologist or something. So here's, my, here's why I'm telling you that. What's happening in the first week since the book is out is that people are saying, well, my aunt has this thing that's happening in her life. She just got diagnosed. Or I was on the, I was on the phone the other day with a guy from Little Rock, a client in Little Rock. He's an asset manager, money manager. He said one of his clients, uh, she walked into her 14-year-old son's bedroom, dramatic story, but sometimes life gets dramatic, and found her son hanging in the closet. And she hasn't been able to get over it. Understandably, she doesn't have to get over it. Maybe for the rest of her life, she doesn't have to get over it. But it's like, the, the, you can hand the book to anybody wherever they are on the spiritual psychological spectrum. It's not a book written only to Christians. In fact, to be blunt about it, I had authors tell me not to let a Christian publisher get hold of it. I said, well, I don't know anything about publishing. Why? They said, because there's a certain number of Bible verses and so on that if it's in the hands of a Christian publisher, they'll want you to have in there. 
So uh, I'm just careful about my language. In the first chapter, if you read the, the first chapter, the Holy Spirit, I will say here, God spoke to me on the second floor of the Denver Art Museum as to why I was writing the book. When I saw Monet's series of haystacks. Uh, so there you have it. But I kind of diluted that a little bit, just called it the voice. <laughs> I have two more questions. One is, one of the reasons I wanted to tell the story was because in some of our lunch conversations, you mentioned the, the uh, inability, I can say this, of your own local congregation mm -hmm. to walk with you long term. You said no one wants to talk I know. to the spouse of a dementia patient when they walk into the church foyer because how are you? It's the same story. And I... I feel like, you know, love is on our walls. The reason we walked into your office was because we, a group of us had loved each other for 15 years and we didn't know if we could do it for 15 more. Uh, yeah, right? yeah. And can the church, can the quality of our love move beyond episodic meals after somebody has a baby that's nice to you? Is, is the love of the church long enough to walk with somebody through a decade or decade plus trial? And that's the question I wanted to ask Providence, because if that's not the case, then what good is the church, right? I know, because, you know, I think, well, what's this community going to need 10 years from now? What's this community going to need 25 years from now? Uh, what's the long haul, you know? Can this community look you in the eye and say, how far will love go? well, just for 20 years, or just until Jason retires? What? Like, no. Uh, you know, my, I have family members that aren't able to visit Janine because it's too painful. I don't mean distant cousins. I mean family members. They can't do it. And FTD is one of the hardest things to be around so I'm kind of giving them a pass, but it's basically about forgiveness. And the church, if we believe what Paul is saying in those passages about his love will not separate from us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But dementia? Long-term dementia separates my faith community from Janine. It just ain't right, to put it simply. And so, yeah, long, think in terms of a long, steady haul. Of If something is too hard for you to look in the eye, that kind of suffering I can handle, but not this kind, you want to be asking yourself, what is it about this kind of suffering that I can't handle. Last question. I sat on your back porch Tuesday night and uh, I looked at you and I said, uh, you actually wrote a romance novel because um, it's so deep on your love for Janine. Yeah. And I feel like marriage is kind of going out of style. I personally covenant to never talk negative about marriage anymore because it needs all the oxygen it, it can get. Yeah, no kidding. And I am deeply in love with that woman, and the book made me fall deeper in love with her. And the in sickness and in health, we don't we say it at the ceremony, um, but it's just a great example. It's not what you pictured it to be at this stage of life. Um, I want you to close with the note you found on your 27th anniversary. Uh, yeah. I have it if you want it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, but you've got it, and you're going to read it anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Uh, I found this in Janine's... Uh, 
journal. Is that what you're going to read? Unless you want to, you want me to read it or do you want to say it? I'll do either one. I want you to read it, yeah. It's really strong. Talk about going through his stuff and they covenanted not to read each other's journals, but he kind of peeked and skimmed through some stuff. I didn't skim. I read it word for okay. word. <laughs> <laughs> I, it was my chance. Janine was gone, maybe. <laughs> So he finds his note on January 30th, 1997 by Janine. Our 27th anniversary. I'm so thankful for all these years with Jay. Credit goes to God and the commitment he's inspired within us and our commitment to grow and accept each other's growth. I really love who he is and who he's becoming. And even if he became non-functional, I would just love his dear soul. pretty strong after 27 years and I read it in our 49th year so uh, by God's grace we're built in such a way that we can love over the long haul and in the midst of pain and suffering and uh by God's grace, we're going to keep doing it. And what was your question? What did you ask me with the first? This because you distracted me on that. Uh, that was good. What was your question? I don't think I had a question. I think I'm just yeah, oh, okay. celebrating. I mean, obviously, she said, if you ever became non-functional, I love his dear soul. And you talk about how that hit you because she went first. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. And I'll t close with this anecdote. In our book club, we read a, a, a book that was um, kind of the, well, it was called a Western. It wasn't a Western. It was really about marriage. And so what the author says about his grandparents is that they created a bruised and careful truce for 45 years. And he said the best you can hope for in marriage is like you each have building blocks or think of an archway and, and you can build, but what you're missing, he gets this explicit, what, what marriage is missing is a capstone that, that creates the arch, right? Well, I'm going to beg to differ with him because the capstone in a marriage, and Janine was perfectly clear about this, 50 years ago, 51 years ago to be exact, as a co-ed at the University of Texas. She said, Christ has to be at the center of our marriage. So now, 50 years later, Christ is still the center of our marriage. With that, it's a wordless center, and it's just a visual center. It's just an eye contact center, but it's still the center of our marriage. And Janine never lost sight of that. So, in all of your relationships, a Christ-centered relationship uh, will give you what it takes to go the distance. Thank you, Jack. You bet. Thank you.